Kia ora koutou and welcome to Tahuhu Korero, a podcast and blog that shares the history work of students and staff at the University of Auckland and the aim of improving the accessibility and inclusivity of the study of history. Kia ora koutou and welcome back to the podcast. Today is a another home edition. We're doing this over the internet. Today's topic, I must say, I'm not a specialist in. I, again, do medieval history and I've done New Zealand history because I think it's important. I think we all need to know about the country that we live in. But I am not a specialist in New Zealand history. And then saying about Australian history, I haven't even done a paper in Australian history, but I've always found it so fascinating how so much can be different despite the fact that we are so close in so many ways, I guess, alike. So it'll be fascinating to do today's topic. And I hope that you guys all enjoy it and that you learn something from it. And this inspires you to go and learn more about either the the country that you live in or countries that are so close to us, but that we possibly don't know so much about. So today we've got two people joining us. We've got Tess Maisie Richardson, who is the president of the History Society and a very good friend of mine. Thank you, Tess, for joining us. Tess, do you want to introduce yourself maybe a little bit? <laughs> uh, kia ora I uh, hope you guys are all um, taking care of yourselves and uh, those around you and everyone's safe and sound. Sorry that we haven't perhaps been as active as um, we'd hoped. Hopefully the, yeah, the podcast goes well. Like Michaela, I also have very limited knowledge of Australian history, but having visited and studied a bit of New Zealand history, I think coming back to what Michaela said about how there are so many similarities between the two countries and yet in this particular way we differ so significantly that's really interesting and something that should be delved into a bit more so I hope you enjoy I'll just be here kind of listening learning chiming in (laughs) yeah chiming in if I have any useful or you know you can determine whether it's useful (laughs) yeah I'll turn I'll hand it back over to Michaela but glad to be here Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. And I guess you could say our resident specialist for today is Malcolm Campbell. He joined us on a previous podcast. Hopefully you've listened to that. It was extremely fascinating. But thank you again, Malcolm, for joining us once again, I guess. Uh, Kia ora. Hi, guys. It's a great pleasure to talk about Australia. It's what I was originally employed to do at the University of Auckland, so I'm really happy to have the opportunity. <laughs> and thank you for being a wealth of knowledge for us today, I guess. You haven't heard me yet. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess to introduce the topic a little bit, I I guess I first heard about this topic in one of Herini's classes. We were learning about, it was his Treaty of Waitangi paper, and we were learning about how the treaty came to be in New Zealand. And one of the comments that Herini made was that the reason we got a treaty, or I guess one of the reasons that New Zealand got a treaty was because we were almost take two. Australia was their first trial. I don't want to say trial at colonization, but you know what I mean? Like they landed in Australia, they tried one thing and they came to New Zealand and tried another thing. And that's kind of all that I've heard. I didn't hear about, I don't know, like what actually happened in Australia. I know that it was atrocious and I know it was awful and you can see the effects of it now in the way that indigenous people are treated and I guess disrespected and there's there's such an inequality that while we still have this in New Zealand, I don't see it as, I don't want to say it's not as profound, but I feel like there's a lot more understanding in New Zealand compared to what I understand of Australian history. So that's why I wanted to talk about this topic and figure out with countries that are so close and with so many similarities, why is there such a disparity with the fact that 
we got a treaty and in Australia there didn't seem to be anything like this. And they haven't since? Yeah. Or that no, there's not a treaty. Mm. There's been talk over time. We'll come to the, we'll come, we can come to that. Yeah. <clears throat> sure. So, so maybe I'll talk a bit about the context of colonisation. Yeah. So, so, Captain, so Captain Cook visited the east coast of Australia in 1770 and returned to Britain. And the decision was made to colonise Australia and the first fleet arrived in 1788. So it's a really interesting time for me. It's on the cusp of what we call, you know, pre-modern history and modern history. Uh, and I think that says a lot about, and it helps us to understand a lot about Australia. So the British decided to establish a colony at, on the east coast of Australia. And one of the most boring, what I thought was one of the most boring debates in Australian history was one I was subjected to as an undergraduate student, which was why this was. And there were books written about this and collections of books, articles and so on. And there were a couple of theories that were floated about this. So one was Britain had uh, a crime problem at, in the late 18th century. And so the decision to establish a convict colony was one way of trying to address this. So rather than executing convicts or locking them up just on uh, old ships on the Thames, the, the idea was that you would transport them to the other side of the world uh, and get them far from home, uh, just eliminate the convict problem was one solution. And in a way, it's a, a, tr it's a true explanation and a very self-evident one. But then there were people who complicated this by saying that there were strategic reasons why Britain wanted a base in the Western Pacific. If we think about the context of the late 18th century, it made sense to, and, and given rivalry with, with France, to have uh, a strategic base in the Western Pacific. And then there were arguments about the need for naval supplies and things like flax. And so uh, a resource-based explanation for the settlement of Australia. And there's probably some truth in all of those. I'm more 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 willing to accept the strategic one than I was when I was a student. <laughs> I think there is a lot more to that than I at first acknowledged. But, it, but it's also obvious that convicts were really important. And so in 1788, the first fleet uh, arrived um, in Sydney. The 26th of January, 1788, became Australia Day, or, or Invasion Day, as it's known by some Indigenous people. And, uh, and Europeans came to establish a convict colony, and that's, that's the the gist of the first uh, European arrival. What was it like? Was it because all of a sudden there's these new people coming into what was your land, I guess. Was was there any, like, resistance. peaceful relations or was it resistance? Or I guess how was that interaction, if you know about? Yeah, yeah, sure. So if you were going to start a settlement from scratch, you probably wouldn't have picked the convicts that they picked to go to Australia. <laughs> You'd, you'd think, what do we need in terms of people who were skilled farmers builders. or skin, skilled builders? And it wasn't, I think, a great ent enterprise. Uh, they arrived and the first governor was Arthur Phillip, who was the, the naval commander in charge of the fleet. And he had orders to live in amity and kindness with the uh, Indigenous people that he encountered. But really, they didn't engage with him very much at all. So the Europeans arrived. One of the sort of hot myths among Australian historians was when the convicts arrived and set foot on land, they had an orgy because they'd been confined to ship for such a long period of time. But really, the first fleet arrived and it was a struggle to survive from pretty much the outset. It's a long voyage. Food supplies were exhausted. There were no buildings, no barracks for convicts to live in. It was a really difficult situation. And those orders to live in amity and kindness and to engage with the people were very difficult to follow in those circumstances and where... Uh, the Indigenous people seem to have no particular interest in engaging with the Europeans and who sort of stepped back a bit, I think. Uh, and so at the end of the first year, 
uh, at the end of 1788, Philip tried to pursue his instructions a bit more to try and build some connections. And historians have, some historians have been fairly sympathetic to Philip in terms of his attempt to reach out to Indigenous Australians, others not so. But certainly whatever he tried was a very ham-fisted attempt, uh, sort of taking Indigenous Australians, Aboriginal people, bringing them in under force to try and begin a negotiation was not very effective. Uh, and it led to um, a, probably a fairly negative start to relations from the beginning, I think, despite, despite what might have been a genuine attempt to build a dialogue. With the term dialogue, you actually raised an issue. So there must have been a language barrier the way there was with New Zealand. So was there any attempt to kind of overcome that? Sure, and I, and, I th and I think there are early, early attempts at dialogue. Um, one of the uh, local uh, Aboriginal people who comes um, is named Benelong, which is the, the point where the Sydney Opera House is located today, uh, at Benelong Point. And so there's an Indigenous Australian who tries to act as an intermediary in a way between Europeans and the um, local population. So there's limited success in, in doing that. I think. But the, the difficulties run deeper than just language and communication, I think. And there's probably two things to talk about this. So one is that, and it's really related to the importance of the treaty, is the doctrine of terra nullius. So when the Europeans came, they occupied Australia on the basis that it was a vacant land. And the reason that they did that was that British law said that if you came across a land that had what you recognise as occupational settlement, then the law of those people applied and was supplemented by British law. So two types of law would exist. But the foundation of the settlement in Australia was that Australia was terra nullius or vacant land, even though there was this, in a sense, recognition, de facto recognition of people. The legal system was un underpinned by the belief that it was vacant and so British law applied totally to the settlement mm. and there was no recognition of indigenous right to land or indigenous customary law and actually that survived in australia up until 1992 we can talk more about that if mm. you want to and then the other key factor it seems to me in the deterioration of relations that happens is the key economic resource and mm. that's land and so Indigenous Australians settled around Sydney and to the north of Sydney found it increasingly hard to access food supplies to access what they needed to survive because Europeans came and inevitably uh, expanded across the land, took it in attempts to farm land and then commodified it and saw it as um, a source of wealth. And that was wealth that was taken at the expense of the Indigenous population. So I think they're two really important factors in trying to understand what's going on. The failure to recognise any sort of Indigenous customary rights or rights to land and then the, the turning of land into a resource. I think that's really interesting that you bring that up because one of the questions that I had planned not realizing that context was how the British viewed the indigenous because one thing that I knew about what Harini mentioned when he was talking about the treaty is when the British turned up to New Zealand, they looked at the way Māori acted and some of their customs and traditions and saw them almost as I hate to say this, but like semi-civilized. And so they saw them almost capable of a treaty due to the structures they already had in place. And so the fact that you said that they viewed this as vacant land, does that then play into the mindset or the way that they viewed the indigenous people of Australia as well? Like, does that play into that at all? 
Probably a bit. I guess the first thing I'd say about this is that the way in which Europeans viewed Indigenous populations varied over time. And I think time is as important as geographic context in the way that this happens. Mm -hmm. And so the first British person to arrive in Australia, as I was taught in social studies in primary school, was William Dampier. And Dampier was a a buccaneer fellow who landed on the coast of Western Australia actually in 1688. And Dampier wrote about his encounter with uh, Aboriginal Australians in the West. And we need to remember Australia is a vast continent with uh, extraordinarily wide range of of, um, Aboriginal peoples. So there's not a common language. People who'd been there for 50,000 years had very different cultures spread across a continent that ranged from alpine areas in the southeast to the tropical north and so on. But Dampier described the the, uh, Indigenous people he encountered in 1688 as the most miserablest people on earth. They they differ but little from brutes, I think is the quote that he used when he encountered them. Wow. We jump forward a hundred years to James Cook, who's very much affected by the idea of the noble savages. And on the East Coast, he says, well, you know, I've encountered people who are very simple, but maybe they're far happier than we Europeans because they don't have to deal with the complex life that we do in a modernising, industrialising Europe. So so the perceptions are very much affected, not just by what's encountered, but by the preconceptions of those who come. And the the view that was held by um, Cook was much more positive than that than that of Dampier 100 years before. And I think the view that people might have had at the end of the 18th century is again a bit different from what existed uh, certainly uh, in New Zealand four decades or so, if we're talking about the time of the treaty, as we move more into the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So, but having said, having said that, um, there's a recognition, I think, in the case of Aotearoa of uh, a settlement that's not true in Australia. And and there's a number of reasons for that. One is I said that Indigenous Australians didn't rush out to embrace the arrival of Europeans. They seemed to withdraw. And another really important factor is to, to recognise is the extent to which the early Indigenous settlements in Australia were decimated by disease. So smallpox is a major killer of uh, Indigenous Australians as early as 1789. And there's two outbreaks of smallpox that spread from Sydney into the inland and in ways that people can't really, couldn't really see because smallpox preceded the frontier. And so you didn't see people who died beyond the frontier because you Mm -hmm. weren't there. And so there's radical depopulation in parts of New South, today's New South Wales as a result of disease in 1789 and then a couple of years later. And so the society that the Europeans uh, who come to occupy the land encounter is one that's not stable in that sense, but one that's undergoing tremendous pressures of, of a terrible uh, disease and depopulation. Uh, interestingly and controversially, uh, economic historian Noel Butlin published a book in the 1980s that suggested that, that looked um, using modelling, well, it's interesting to talk about in today's context where we're very much looking at modelling in terms of pandemics, uh, looked at the impact of those and at the at the level of depopulation that occurred and revised upwards the estimates of the size of the Indigenous population. I mean, today most people would say the overall Aboriginal population of mainland Australia in 1788 was about three quarters of a million people. And that's far in excess of what people would have thought uh, a, a long time ago. 
I mean, he said it might have even been higher that the size had been underestimated as a result of the effects of smallpox. Mm -hmm. and, and most controversially, he suggested that smallpox might have been deliberately introduced uh, into Australia as a depopulating agent. And I don't think we need to de decide that issue. And it was very controversial and probably still is, I think. But nevertheless, they are some of the things that explain why the society that Europeans encountered might have been perceived differently, as well as the views of Europeans and as well maybe as the physical uh, settlement of, ind of Indigenous society in the two places. Just a quick question. Was there any voluntary trade or bartering between the Indigenous peoples and the European settlers the way that they're kind of, they're, they came to be in New Zealand? I guess my perception would be that not on the same scale. Mm -hmm. And and that's a reflection both of the, in a sense, the withdrawal and distance that existed yeah. between the two, I would say. Partly perhaps also relates to the intensiveness of agriculture maybe in the two societies. I mean, it's certainly true that Indigenous Australians were engaged in agriculture. Um, in, in parts of the continent, but that might be another factor in that as well. So maybe maybe it wasn't as great. Although one thing we should remember about the first European settlement is the struggle to survive. I mean, the near starvation and, and famine that affected that. So when supply ships from Britain didn't arrive or were shipwrecked, um, it reaches a real point of desperation for the Europeans who have arrived in Sydney. And it's only t over time when they become successful at growing some crops that that food crisis is alleviated. Mm -hmm. This makes it sound so much like the the incorporation of the the new world into the old world. Because I, I mean, I'm tutoring global history at the moment, and we've just covered the quote unquote founding of the Americas. Yeah. And I mean, the introduction of smallpox and the the food shortages and the struggles with growing crops and understand. Like I didn't realize that this had also happened in Australia. And it's interesting that there it does seem so similar in that sense. Yeah, so I mean, one when I, classic essay question is, you know, uh, about the one about destructiveness. I mean, white violence or disease being more destructive. It's a question that we apply when we look at the Americas, but one that we can also look at in the Australian context where smallpox, but then other, other, other diseases and over time venereal disease also have major effects on the Indigenous mm. population. So there, there are some real similarities there, I think. Time makes Australia different from the Americas, but it also makes it different from Aotearoa, I think. Mm. And it falls into a really interesting category there. And so Terra Nullis, Terra Nullius, that doctrine of, of vacant land becomes really important in terms of um, what occurs. Now, a different case study almost is uh, Tasmania. So the first settlement occurs in Sydney and then a new offshoot settlement, a couple are established, one at Norfolk Island off the coast, which becomes a, a place of secondary punishment. So for convicts who are particularly bad and re-offend, they're sent off to Norfolk Island, which is portrayed in British reports as being a sort of a hell upon earth place. And then um, Tasmania becomes a place of convict settlement. And there'd been contact between, there was contact between Europeans and Indi um, Aboriginal people in Tasmania in a variety of ways. So sealing, for example, coastal connections and so on. But the establishment of the convict settlement and then the expansion of agriculture movements to pastoralism create particular tensions on an island that doesn't have the 
land mass, the land capacity of the mainland. And so what occurs there is a conflict that becomes, I think, more uh, more intense, that sees higher levels of casualties on both sides, uh, proportionally. So a high level of um, Aboriginal deaths, but a higher level of European deaths, to the point where the manager of the Van Diemen's Land Company is saying, I think, by the 1820s, look, either we have to abandon the island or we have to subdue the Aboriginal population, that we can't go on like this. And a variety of measures are enacted by the government there to try and deal with that situation, including the, the famous Black Line, which sees Europeans in Tasmania walking across to the island in a sense. They call part of it the settled districts and part of the unsettled districts and trying to ensure that no Indigenous people are in areas occupied by Europeans. And it reaches a point where eventually an English man named George Augustus Robinson, who did speak local language, he's often portrayed as a sort of a Pied Piper figure, persuaded uh, an Aboriginal population that had been very much affected by violence, to a lesser extent by disease. There weren't the sort of outbreaks such as smallpox that had occurred on the mainland. Uh, persuaded them to abandon the island and to go off the, the Tasmanian mainland onto an island named Flinders Island, which was off the right. coast and to surrender their land, but they would receive the opportunity to live on a different island and create their own settlement there, which ended up being one of English workers' cottages and Christianity and so on. And there's a lot one could say about that. Now, the, I guess the most famous historian of Indigenous Australia or Aboriginal Australia is Henry Reynolds. And he made the argument as early as the 1990s that if Aborigines had thought to say to George Augustus Robinson, write down for us that in return for leaving our homeland Tasmania and going on to Flinders Island, we're going to get the island. If they'd asked for it in writing, they would have got it from him or from the Tasmanian government, that there was this sense of a deal. Give up your land and you'll be compensated by something else. But it wasn't put down in writing. No one thought to do it. No one thought to ask. And Reynolds was arguing at that time that this was in some ways a forerunner for the experience of treaty in the sense that um, the failure to record the deal involving um, Tasmanian Aboriginal people in writing was one of the factors that might have led to a greater focus on, on, a, on a treaty. And I, th I think that's a really interesting argument. I do know that one of the biggest issues with the Treaty of Waitangi was when it comes down to the understanding of law and certain worldviews that come towards these. And one thing that we've guess really emphasized in one of Sarah's courses is that while Europeans saw this written document as contract and as law, Māori more, I guess, came to those decisions and those understandings through discussion. And so I don't want to say they didn't have the, the worldview, the understanding, but they didn't view the document because of their worldview as like a binding thing, because that's not the worldview they is that something similar like in australia like is it that they didn't ask for a written document for flinders island because it's not something that they saw as a foundational part of their culture and society i guess yeah i mean that that's probably true i think that that it was i mean indigenous australian society was was very oral mm. based society i mean they didn't deal in in written contracts and so Robinson's promise that give up the island and in return we will go and create mm. a new settlement something that was probably was probably seen and understood 
but but not. Um, and they and they obviously did go to the island, which proved to be a disaster for those who went in terms of the the impact on on that population. But but they went as part of what they understood to be an agreement. Mm. Um, I guess the one other thing I would throw into this mix is the really important 1837 British Select Committee on Aboriginal Peoples. So. In 1837, there's a British parliamentary report that looks at the experience of Indigenous populations in, in, across the British Empire. Uh, it certainly looks at Australia, it talks about the Pacific, it looks at Africa. And one of the things that comes through really strongly in that is what they describe as being the need to fix the rules of colonisation. It's a really interesting document in 18, 1837, in my view, for its time. I mean, it has quite strong humanitarian impulse and it's very concerned about the abuses of indigenous or Aboriginal peoples that have occurred through the world, through the empire, as a result of European colonisation. And so one of the things it does is to say that to avoid the abuses that have occurred, we've got to have more clarity or, their words, fix the rules and introduce laws of justice. And so what that's signalling is that the sort of informal relations, the non-codified relations, the failure to have a code that Europeans were required to abide by in terms of their dealing with Indigenous peoples was no longer acceptable. And so we see at the same time the formation of the Aboriginal Protection Society, I think it occurs the same year, with this emphasis upon, upon trying to view colonisation in a more orderly way. Now, you can look at the report, I and mean, I said it, it's, it's a very interesting report to read because of its humanitarian bent. I mean, it does view Indigenous people in ways that we wouldn't today. I mean, there's a sense of uh, simplicity, I think, that comes through in the way in which Indigenous populations are viewed. But nevertheless, there is, at that time, by the 1830s, a real concern about the, the uh, uncontrolled impact of European contact and colonisation. And so we can think about the difference between 1788 and, and 1840 when the landscape in British politics and the landscape in the British humanitarian thinking had, had transformed, I think, to a significant effect. And maybe that's an important thing. Alongside Reynolds' idea of, of thinking about putting it down, we can say that in the 1830s there is this desire, I think, to codify, to, to be more clear about expectations of European colonisation. Now, it's one thing to talk about that. It's another thing to actually translate that into action on the ground to see that those who engaged in killings of Indigenous people, for example, are actually brought to justice. And that inquiry looks at some abuses that have occurred and it finds it abhorrent the way in which colonisation has been rampant and the interests of Indigenous people have not been acknowledged in some ways. So that's a really interesting forerunner, I think, to the treaty in 1840 as well. Something that I was wondering is if, if and when Indigenous Aboriginal people in Australia become visible within the governing body of Australia. I mean, this is obviously jumping way ahead, but surely at some point there has to, they have to, I'd be surprised if there's not no representation within the governing body. I just don't know. Sure. So, <clears throat> sure. So it's, that raises some sort of interesting general questions about the differences between New Zealand and Australia, I think. Mm -hmm. So one, one thing to say would be uh, that 
the Indigenous population of Australia, and when we talk about the Indigenous population of Australia today, we're talking about people from the Torres Strait Island, Islands to the north of Australia, and also uh, Aboriginal Australians who live on the mainland in Tasmania, are a much smaller proportion of the population than they are than are Maori in New Zealand. I see. Oh, wow. So, so we're talking. For a long time, it was 2%. That population has probably increased a bit, and I haven't looked at the recent census, but we're talking about, uh, certainly I would think less than 4%, probably less than 3% of the total population. Let's say wow. 4%. So, so it's a much smaller group. The other thing as an Australian who came to New Zealand was to the, the hearing Te Reo uh, as a language on news and, and radio. Well, in Australia, there's not one Indigenous language. No. There's, mm. there's hundreds of Indigenous languages. And, and while broadcasting does occur in Indigenous languages, it tends to occur very community-based. And so that sense of one language can give a sense of national... Identity. Um, or... Identity, of, of national cohesiveness. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Now, it's, I think there is, there, I think there is Indigenous identity in Australia, I think it's, but sometimes that can be more a product of shared historical experience of recognition of a history of dispossession of discrimination, uh, rather than a sense of connectedness based on 50,000 years of culture for very different groups in, as I've said, in very different geographic contexts. So that's one factor to think about in terms of the public profile of Indigenous Australians. There's other factors too. So. When Australia is a federation with states, a bit like the United yeah. States, and when Australia became a Commonwealth in 1901, various powers were given to the federal government, but power to legislate for Indigenous people was not one of the powers that the federal government was given. And so control over Indigenous peoples remained with the states, what were the colonies, and became the states. And that was true up until 1967, so up until um, 1967, the federal government couldn't make laws in Australia regarding Aboriginal peoples. Wow. And, and the re 1967 referendum, it's very hard to change the Australian constitution and campaigns are not often successful, but this one wasn't actually by a very wide margin. And 1967 saw the, the federal government given the power to legislate. One of the consequences of that was Officially, in Aboriginal people in Australia, Indigenous people were counted in the Australian federal census in 1971, which was the next federal census after 1967. So that's not to, so that's not to say there weren't extensive laws controlling Aboriginal peoples, Indigenous peoples before then. There were they were uh, at the state level um, laws that were very intrusive into people's lives and so on. But the federal government's power came um, from 1967, and We'll talk a bit more about Tessa's question in a moment, and but just to f follow that through a little bit. And so the federal government gained power to legislate in a variety of ways, including a Racial Discrimination Act in 1975 that outlawed discrimination on the basis of race in Australia. But still that doctrine of terra nullius remained the yeah. underpinning of Australia's legal system. And there's a, a variety of attempts to secure land rights through from the 1960s through the 1970s. But they run into the fundamental problem that there is no inherent recognition of an indigenous right to land in Australia at that time. So, and courts occasionally were sympathetic in a way because they were being approached by uh, indigenous peoples who were very connected to the land and, 
and who were making very good cases for that connection, but in a, a legal system that was based on, on precedent, it was very difficult to overcome this problem. And then in, in 1992, in a very famous Australian legal case, the Marbo case, the High Court of Australia said by a, in a, by a majority that you could no longer perpetuate the myth of terra nullius, that the historical evidence <laughs> the uh, and, and the historical experience of Australia meant the court just couldn't go along with this anymore and that while you wouldn't normally overturn precedent and so on, it was just essential to do that and to acknowledge the lived experience of Indigenous Australians and to recognise that they did have connection with the land and that the doctrine of terra nullius had no place in Australian law. And that introduced the possibility of claims based on customary title to land in places where that hadn't been extinguished. And so there was no question in the, in the court, the court didn't offer the prospect that Indigenous people could claim the continent of Australia or where land had been alienated by freehold, so backyards of Australian suburbs and so on, it was clear that the, the Indigenous title there had been extinguished. But in some parts of Australia where there hadn't been explicit legislation alienating the land and so on, Indigenous title to land could continue to exist. And so that was 1992. It's, it's very recently yeah, that um, Terranullius was, was removed. So that provides something of the context for why it is that the political presence and impact of Indigenous Australians has not been as much as one might imagine if you were to look mm -hmm. at the New Zealand example. And so there have been a variety of Indigenous politicians in Australia in the 1970s, Queensland Senator Neville Bonner, and through to today, small numbers of Indigenous Australians have sat in the federal parliament or in state parliaments, but, but it has been a limited, a limited presence. There have been attempts to try and go around that a little bit. So through the creation of things like lands councils, which have been in some ways representative of Indigenous populations, but the willingness of the federal government to recognise and empower those sorts of sub-national mm -hmm. bodies has varied over time. At times, governments have been reluctant to use the word liberal in Australia because it, it implies a political party, but I mean here in the sense of empowering Indigenous people. Some Australian governments have been more willing to grant autonomy to Indigenous Australians, to control resources, to try and organise an Indigenous economy and to have more control over their own lives. And at other times that's not been the case, sometimes driven by a backlash about you know, the waste of resources or the inability of Indigenous Australians to govern themselves. And when that happens, politicians' instinctive reaction has been to step back and and to, and to lack sympathy. So they've been some of the some of the characteristics, I guess, as I would see it, of of that experience. Has there been anything set up like how we've got the Waitangi Tribunal here, which That's is specifically yeah, which is specifically set up to deal with? I know it's I guess to do with um, breaches of the treaty, and there isn't a sure. treaty in Australia. But is there anything dedicated to helping Aboriginals and Indigenous peoples to redress? Yeah. Sure. So. There's, there's not a, anything quite like the Waitangi Tribunal, which has its foundations in the treaty, in the, in the treaty obviously. Mm -hmm. when, after the Mabo decision, the, which, and I said that the outcome was that Indigenous title could survive in various places. And one of the issues after that was, well, who's going to decide where, where it 
exists and where it doesn't exist. And the government's response to that was to say, we don't want every claimant going to the court and they're not all going to get to the High Court of Australia. So to look at a tribunal that would adjudicate claims for native title's existence and also to acknowledge that native title had been extinguished for many Indigenous people across Australia and to try and create a financial resource to support people who could make, not make claims. One of the really interesting cases that was after the Marbo case was called the WIC case in Australia, W-I-K. It, it relates to something that was a phenomenon in 19th century Australia, which was called a pastoral lease. So if you're a there's various types of control of land. So if you're a tenant, for example, and you rent a flat, then you have an interest in the land that's not the same as someone who holds it freehand, but you do have various rights in the land. So for example, if the landlord knocks on your door and says, I'm coming in right now, you can say, no, you, you're not coming in right now. And there are things called licenses to land, which give you various forms of access and control. Well, in the 19th century, across fairly large parts of Australia, in South Australia and in other places, there was a particular type of interest in land that was created that was called the pastoral lease, where land was given to pastoralists for very large scale extensive pastoralism. But it wasn't, it was never imagined at the time that Indigenous people wouldn't be on the land, that they would all be moved off. They're sort of living on the land in these very large areas of, you know, hundreds of square kilometres while pastoralism occurs. And the Wick case, which I think was 1996, was a question of whether or not a lease, a 19th century pastoral lease extinguished native title to land. Now, a lease on a flat probably would, but the court in Wick said that this was a very distinctive form of interest in land, that when they were drawn up in the 19th century, it was never expected that Indigenous people wouldn't be there. They were there. Mm. And so it said that they didn't extinguish native title totally but it was affected and it encouraged landowners and Indigenous populations to work together to reconcile a, a mutual interest or a shared interest in land. That the Indigenous presence couldn't adversely affect the pastoralist interest because that was what the lease gave, because they, I mean, they still exist, gave the person control for pastoralism. But at the same time, Indigenous people could be on the land and have an interest in the land. And this created a storm of political controversy and led to attempts to extinguish uh, native title in Australia. I think the government at the time, which was a conservative government, talked about achieving buckets of extinguishment by trying to do away with this. And there's extensive fear campaigns about people losing their backyards and this has all become too, too much. So that remains a, a contentious issue. So yes, there, there have been attempts to try and create other legal avenues for exploring or solving issues of both inequality or distributing economic means and reconciling land. But I think the record is patchy and not very successful, I would say, overall. And the, from my perspective, the fundamental reason for that is that there's a, I would say that there's a much more widespread sense of sympathy and recognition about the wrongs of the past among Australia's populations, a willingness to say that we regret what happened. And when not that long ago, Prime Minister Kevin Rudd issued an apology to um, Indigenous Australians for the experience of the stolen generations, I think there was widespread, fairly widespread support and acknowledgement about the importance of that. But when you get into 
the harder aspect of economic compensation or then that becomes a more difficult barrier to cross. It's one thing to have a moral sense about the wrong of the past. It's another one to match with actually saying, well, we today might have to provide resource to redress them. Yeah. So I know that perhaps it's not the case because of the small percentage um, that the Aboriginal population represented, but in comparison to the percentage of Māori in Aotearoa New Zealand. But I know that during the 70s um, and 80s in New Zealand, there was a big revitalisation of um, Māori culture, especially amongst um, young New Zealanders, and partly that was influenced by um, social movements elsewhere in the world, such as like the Black Panthers in America. Was there any social movements such as that, I guess, or similar? Sure, sure. Yeah, there there absolutely was. So the period of the, I guess we're thinking about the 1960s onward in particular, saw extensive what what we would call civil rights campaigns Mm -hmm. among Indigenous Indigenous Australians and their supporters. And that took a variety of forms, including freedom rides by um, young Indigenous Australians and supporters. getting buses and going out into Australian country towns where racism was particularly deeply rooted to... And and do we highlight particular examples of discrimination that existed? For example, the way that Indigenous Australians who had fought in Australia's armed forces during World War II were excluded in some cases from returned servicemen's clubs. The way in which in some Australian country towns, black children were excluded from public swimming pools. And so... Efforts were made to highlight all of those all of those things. So the freedom rides, uh, the use of the media very extensively to try and highlight highlight indigenous concerns, a, a range a range of measures that. And it's around that time that we also see some of the consequences of that. So the establishment of things like the Aboriginal Legal Service, which was uh, a product of the activism of young indigenous Australians to bring about, a, a legal system that would provide support for Aboriginal people, Aboriginal health service and so on. So it, it, it was a sense of activism that gave rise to some really uh, important and much needed forms of social support for Indigenous communities across Australia. So it's a really, it's a really important time. And one of the key drivers in that uh, was a man named Charles Perkins. Who About that side of Australian history? Much more, much more. I'm sure it happens much more than it was when I was at school. I'm, get, I'm getting <laughs> older. So, so when I was at school last century, we, we were taught a fairly basic social studies course about Indigenous Australians. I mean, I can say, you know, I was in primary school in the 1970s and we were taught, I do remember aspects of the teaching of Indi- Australian Aboriginal history, which were based upon what we now know are very flawed sort of anthropological Mm-hmm. views about the past, that there were three different, Joseph Birdsell's tri-hybrid theory, that there were three different groups of people, basically skin colour determined, the three arrivals and so on, and, and things that wouldn't wouldn't be taught today, mm. that occur in my Australian history lectures because I talk about them. But no, but I'm sure, I'm sure Indigenous studies is much more prominent in Australian uh, studies today. I mean, the profile of Indigenous Australians is is greater than it was. There's more recognition about the presence of Indigenous Australians, and that would be true in town and country areas. So, Because that was something that I was going to bring up as well, because I know one of the biggest issues in New Zealand is 
the way that the treaty is taught in high schools mm -hmm. and in primary schools that people feel like they learn two facts about it and it's rehashed for their 13 years of schooling, which leads to a lack their, of yeah, a lack of understanding and their opinions on everything. And I think a very closed minded understanding or not a willingness to want to learn more because they feel like they know everything. Because like in all honesty, that's how I went into university thinking I've learned everything. I've done the treaty for how many years? Surely there, I know this is very silly, but surely there can't be too much more that I haven't heard if this is all I've heard for 13 years and came to university and I was literally mind blown and shocked. And I, I have to say, I left some of Harini's lectures just like, I couldn't speak. I was so shocked about the things that had happened. I mean, I've been to Mission Bay and all of those areas so many times and not knowing the history of that area. And now every time I, point. I can't, I can't not think about it. And so I guess that has, I was willing though to learn. And I know one of the issues in New Zealand is that people, because of the education system, I guess don't want to, which I guess now that, that there is more of an emphasis on talking about not just the treaty, but New Zealand history and, and different areas of New Zealand yeah. in schools is hopefully going to change. But I guess I was just wondering, what's the mindset around this in Australia based on, is it linked to the education system or? Well, I've got a couple of things to say about this. <laughs> One is, and it would be a really, a really good topic for a future podcast, would be a discussion about national curricula in history and yeah. about the way in the way in which and Australia has certainly been in I mean the idea of mandatory teaching of yeah. uh, Australian history for civics and so on but also then the the contest over what that curriculum is yeah. and and in Australia there's been various attempts to try and define a national curriculum that is not on the one hand from conservative point of view not not too radical that celebrates the heroes of Australian history and not a sort of black arm band or negative view of Australian history. And that if you, while we're in lockdown, if you want to have a talk about that, because <laughs> I think that would take more time than we've got here, but it's a really yeah. interesting topic and mm -hmm. really good one to talk about, I think. Mm -hmm. But outside the education system, if we just park that for a moment, the Australians have long had a very negative view of Indigenous Australians in the way that colonisers uh, part of the... Part of, part of the experience of colonisation, part of the process of colonisation, is to undermine, demean, reduce the colonised people. And that occurs, I think, in my view, in all colonial contexts. It's a, a, a part of that process. And that's, and that's been, because it's a sense of domination, and part of that is to undermine, to erode. And so that's certainly been a, a feature of Australian life over a very long period of time. And persists today in a variety of ways in terms of language, in terms of underestimation of Indigenous achievement and so on. Mm -hmm. And there are exceptions to that. There are people who recognise the enormous endurance and vitality of Indigenous culture and the richness and so on, but that's always running against the, the process of colonisation, which remains something that's a feature, a presence today, I think. So that's a really interesting struggle to think about, I think. And the other thing to say is about Australians' encounters with Indigenous Australians. So Indigenous Australians are not evenly dispersed across the continent. And a feature would be concentrations of Indigenous Australians in particular states. So Western Australia, Queensland, the Northern Territory, for example. And the sense of spatial difference that exists even within cities themselves. 
So for a long time, there were parts of Sydney or parts of other cities or parts of country towns that were the places that Indigenous Australians were known to live or Aboriginal people, some suburbs. For a long time, Redfern in inner city Sydney was an Aboriginal suburb and it was viewed very negatively because it was the place that Aboriginal people lived. And, and so on. So that sense of distance for a long time meant that Australians' perceptions of Indigenous Australian people often secondhand might not have met Aboriginal people, didn't yeah. know who they were. Uh, and that's broken down a lot, I think, for some, a fair bit, for a number of reasons. One is more people identifying as Indigenous or exploring their Indigenous roots. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot we could say about people who who are now em embrace their Indigenous roots in, and are aware of them in a way that was suppressed in the past or not either suppressed from them or which was not played up. And now I think there's a much more um, greater pride and willingness to identify Indigenous in and, and that affects relations that people have with their neighbours and with others. Yeah, I noticed yeah. that uh, um, conference I was at last year in Sydney, many of the speakers, when they came to present their papers, acknowledged their ancestral links the same way that, you know, if you have Māori heritage in Aotearoa, New Zealand, when you introduce yourself, you do like a paper ha or something. It was their equivalent of that. And that was something that I had never seen before. Maybe that was just because it was my first Australian uh, conference, but it was also something that surprised me because of the reputation that Australia has. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess also just adding quickly into that, I noticed the exact same thing. I was at a conference at Monash University last year and I noticed it, it wasn't so much that, but they acknowledged whose land it was and mm -hmm. the original people of the land. And I was, I don't want to say shocked. I was pleasantly shocked because <laughs> I didn't know that they did that in Australia, I guess like we do here in New Zealand. No, it certainly wasn't a feature of my childhood that that, that occurred. But but it but it is a feature now, and it's common at conferences, even at the range of public events. So cricket tests, major sporting events, will often have an acknowledgement of the indigenous uh, elders, past, present, and leaders mm. of the future. So and corporations will sometimes acknowledge the the location of their meetings or buildings and so on. So there are there are definitely changes that are occurring in terms of uh, in terms of recognition, generational changes in terms of recognition, I think. Mm. It's uneven and, and as I said before, it's, it's very important. It's really important symbolic, symbolically, but also not always matched by resource. Yeah. Not always matched by, by the sort of resource that will address the high rates of imprisonment, the lower life expectancy, mm. and the whole range of issues that adversely affect Indigenous communities right across Australia. Here's the question that all historians sort of dread, maybe. Do you think that had there been a treaty, like how different do you think Australia would be now with regards to the inequalities and the lack of tangible or the lack of system of redress to get tangible resources or compensation? Well, that's a, it's a really good hypothetical question. <laughs> um, not, I so, mean, I'm not so, going to hold you to your answer. But. Uh, well, I guess I'm torn in two directions. I don't think, I don't think that colonisation and the impact of colonisation over in a long historical period is much mitigated by a document. Mm. 
And I don't think that where the, the intent of colonisation is to dispossess, to subordinate and so on, that the document stands in the way of mm. poor health outcomes or... It's almost a more formality than anything else. Tokenism. It's the, the power of the colonial project, for me, mm. if you were to look... From my from my limited knowledge as a historian, the the power of that exceeds the power of a of a document. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Having said that, it's really interesting to see the way in which the presence of a document, say in the case of New Zealand, has given Maori a legal basis for asserting claims that that is clearly absent in the case of Australia. So it is a really significant document. And it does have real meaning and real effect, I think. And you can see that even if it's not always felt by its absence in other contexts, I would say. So I guess that, if I can chime in here, leads into the question that you hinted at at the beginning of the podcast, which I've been waiting to ask, is you mentioned that they don't have a treaty, but is there talks about oh, yeah, one? Or what, what did you mean by when you mentioned that earlier? Sure. So, that, so there have been various discussions over the last 40 years, I guess, about, about something along the lines of a treaty. So in the 1980s, there was a public discussion about a, a Makarata in Australia, a form of treaty between Indigenous Australians and, and Europeans. And that ran into a variety of hurdles, I think. Partly, you, you've got hundreds of languages. How do you, how do you define mm. a treaty? What words do you use to describe a document between Indigenous peoples and the government? There've been talk about a recognition in the Australian constitution of the Indigenous presence in Australia. And I think there've been some very, some positive discussions around that. And, and that's a, a, probably an ongoing discussion. So I think, I think there are possibilities for a more formal and legal acknowledgement of the Indigenous place in Australian life. One of the one of the things, part of one thing that interestingly cropped up in some of those discussions was attempts to determine what Indigenous people want, mm. and there is no. What would be the mechanism for that? I think is a really interesting question. Mm. I mean, could you could you establish um, in in the sense that there are Maori seats in New Zealand? could you establish an Australian, Indigenous Australian electoral role that would enable people to vote on a particular series of issues that related to Indigenous people? And I think it's all very well for commentators to assert what the Indigenous view is. It's quite difficult to measure that, I think, I would have thought. And so thinking about mechanisms for determining some of those questions, I think, is an interesting thing. But that will um, occupy much better informed and brighter minds than me. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking, I feel like that's a possibly good place to end it. And I honestly, I've taken notes like this whole time on potential future topics. And it's just, it's so fascinating, especially because I've, I've, I've never learned this and it's, it's shocking. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm very grateful for this conversation and I'm, I'm thankful that you took the time out of your lockdown to have a chat with us and yeah thank you so much for that for doing that yeah totally really appreciate it and it was like having a, a crash course in yeah Australian history but with just two people in the class yeah <laughs> <laughs> well 
Well, I don't get to teach Australian history as often as often as I would sort of like to. So I'm really delighted to have the chance. And to think about it in that international context, I mean, there's yeah. even more that we could talk about, for example, the sense in which the American West mm. also experienced some of the conditions that we might see as like terra nullius yeah. uh, in contrast to other parts of the United States. So you know, I'm just <laughs> delighted to have the opportunity to talk to both of you and to see yeah. you. So, so yeah, thank you. Thank you pleasure. so much. And thank you to everyone who's still listening, despite the crazy conditions that we're living in. And hopefully this has brought something for you guys to do at home and hopefully still stay connected to the History Society and what we're doing and I guess bringing the learning to a new kind of context because I know that a lot of people, a lot of my students even are struggling with this change from being in class and seeing people to suddenly learning at home. So yeah, hopefully you guys have enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your continued support and if, again, if you have any questions, feel free to email us. You can message us on Facebook, anything. Thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye for now. Bye for now. Oh, yeah. Okay, they are not.